This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger. And today I am delighted to welcome Joella Caballu to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Joella Caballu is a documentary filmmaker and producer based in Vancouver. There's something about Joella's work. I can't quite put my finger on a single word to describe why she excites me as a filmmaker and a producer. I think it's the undeniable humanity in her documentary projects. Her ability to make me feel a sense of camaraderie with people who have vastly different lives and experiences than I do, be it the bikers on Vancouver Island featured in Biker Bob's posthumous adventure, the trans activists challenging social media censorship policies and do I have boobs now, a family saying goodbye to their 40-year-old Japanese restaurant in Koto, the last service, the trio of determined pro-mountain bikers in On Falling, or even her own brother in It Runs in the Family, a documentary featuring deeply personal queer stories from the Philippines and the diaspora. Joella has been recognized with awards, including the Emerging Filmmaker Award from Bloomington Pride Film Festival and Best Documentary Short to the Vancouver International Women in Film Festival. And she also has fans all over the world who are excited by her vision, empathy, curiosity, and creativity. So today, we're going to speak with this visionary, empathetic, curious, and creative documentarian about the art of sharing nonfiction stories that connect us all. Joella Caballu, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sabrina. That was so moving. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's all true. I felt so, um, yeah, so seen by that. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm interested by that reaction. How do you see yourself as a mm. filmmaker? You know, what, what kind of filmmaker, be, be it as a director or as a producer, you know, do you consider yourself to be? Hmm. I think um, what you were pointing to um, is definitely something I want to continue to move forward to um, work in um, a practice that is centered on care and empathy. And I think I, I really put a lot of pressure on myself to um, to not replicate toxic environments <laughs> um, or to cause more harm. And so I think that uh, just being acknowledged for that is, is why I felt, uh, why I was moving. So that, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes when you put so, when I put so much pressure on myself, it's nice to be seeing that like, okay, 
what I'm doing is actually having an impact. It is absolutely having an impact. So this is going to be an origin story episode where we're going to go back in time and figure out how you got from point A to point Z, <laughs> one, five, two, I don't know, how you got from, from there to here. So first of all, you get to choose your time travel vehicle of choice. What is your time travel vehicle of choice? Joella Cabana. Um, let's go with a rocket. <laughs> just a thinking rocket. Of, okay. Just thinking of the emoji rocket. <laughs> okay. So we are. So our time travel vehicle of choice is the rocket emoji. We're gonna we're gonna climb onto that emoji, and we're going to we're. So I'm obsessed with ten. That is my daughter's age. It seems like such a pure, passionate. I don't know. It's like your, your humanity is just condensed, you know, into this like little willful, you know, unsullied by an uncynical being, you know? <laughs> so uh, let's, let's go back to, to Joella at 10. Where are we going and what kind of a kid were you and what did you want to be when you grew up? Mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I, just before I came on this podcast, uh, you know, a glamorous life of a filmmaker, I was uh, writing a grant. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a big part of being a, a filmmaker in Canada. Yeah. Um, and I was reflecting on, on uh, my childhood. Um, so kind of close in age, um, 10, 11 years old. I uh, grew up in Burnaby mm-hmm. in the Lower Mainland. And yeah, I, I was really in love with movies. Um, going to the local family-run um, video rental store mm-hmm. with my folks on the weekends to, like, get the three-for-one deal. Like, how are we going to watch four movies in a weekend? <laughs> but um, I just uh, really gobbled up popular media and movies. And um, in particular, with writing this grant, um, we can talk more about this project that I'm working on. But just thinking about how I was so influenced and enamored with like romantic comedies and romantic dramas and how that really influenced me at that age of like really being introduced to the concept of falling in love and like falling hard for it. So I think there's like this romanticism as, as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old chihuahua. Wow. <laughs> falling in love with love. Falling in love with the idea of following, falling in love. What about um, what about your dreams for, for what you wanted to do when you yeah. grew up? You know, was mm-hmm. was filmmaking a possible like even on your radar at that point? Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, I think around that age, elementary school age. <clears throat> Because part of kind of part of my very complex background, um, being ethnically Filipino, but um, I was born in the U.S., never lived there. My mom was on vacation, <laughs> like rattling oh. off this stuff. Like I've explained this so many times. Mm-hmm. But um, part of my, you know, as a kind of a romantic at that age, think, realizing that I have a connection to the U.S., a connection to Hollywood. Um, at that age, I remember. Um, I think this is now around like 12 years old that I wanted to go to school in the U.S. and study filmmaking. And um, so that had always been kind of a, 
planted in my brain at an <laughs> early age of um, what I wanted to be. But of course, the journey from that to where I am now, almost like 20 plus years <laughs> later, yeah. um, has been, uh, you know, one of like unlearning and building confidence. And uh, yeah, so it's been, you know, an uh, adventure. <laughs> yeah. An adventure, like what, what Biker Bob had, but <laughs> while he's still here, while you're still here. Yeah. Um, what was your first interaction with documentary storytelling? <sighs> there was, um, so again, part of my, my background um, in the circuitous route to where I've landed, um, I studied so when I was going to go to university at UBC, um, my first um, inclination for a degree was to go into filmmaking, was mm -hmm. to go into film studies. But something in my brain quickly challenged that, saying, who do you know <laughs> um, as directors, as Hollywood directors who are women, who are Asian, and who are successful? And I just came up with a blank. Mm -hmm. And so I just told myself right away that like, you're not going to be successful. So let's do something else. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. for my view, um, in order to be successful in that industry, you had to be a man, you had to be assertive, you had to be aggressive, all the things that I'm not. Mm -hmm. So I did the next best thing, which was art history. And during that time in university and then going into my first jobs in um, kind of business and nonprofit, um, I would still go to film festivals. That was still very much an interest of mine. And mm -hmm. I just noticed that I would always select documentaries. <laughs> yeah. um, and I remember one time at the Vancouver International Film Festival going to a matinee at the now you know, rest in peace, Granville 7 cinema. Oh, <laughs> Granville 7, yes. Yeah. I remember and going to see a film at Granville 7 at the film festival and then like running across the street, yeah. you know, to <laughs> Capital 6 to like, you know, see there. And what was it? Do you remember specifically yeah, the film it so was? It was, um, it was called Soundtrack for a Revolution, um, kind of like mid-2000s. Um, and... I just remember being in the theater. It's a matinee, so like no one's there. <laughs> I'm by myself. Yeah. And it was a, you know, essentially telling the story of the civil rights movement from uh, the activists themselves. Mm. And they would kind of the, the skeleton of the film was talking about the songs that they would sing to kind of rally their spirits. And, you know, they would start singing the song and then it would be covered by a contemporary artist. So like The Roots or Joss Stone at the time. Yeah. And I just remember, um, you know, just being so incredibly moved to tears by one of the activist story of um, marching on Selma. And I think it was at that point, just realizing like, you know, for documentary nonfiction, you know, there are so many stories that are untold and they're so uh, remarkable and um, relatable and, and just resonated so deeply with me that kind of thinking about documentaries later on as something I wanted to pursue is like, there's so many, such a 
so much to mine from there that yeah. I don't need to make up stories for fiction narrative. So that's kind of where that love grew. I love that that was the film, that was the documentary that, that did it for you because I see, I see activism in, in your work. Um, it might not always be obvious on the surface, uh, but I definitely see it there. Um, and I also see it obviously in, on social media and in the events that, that uh, you, that you moderate that, you know, mm-hmm. when we used to go to events, I'd see you at events, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, can, can you tell me about the role that, that activism plays in your filmmaking? Mm-hmm. And how that might've changed over, over yeah. time? I feel like, you know, activism with like a capital A has never been um, kind of like a major focal point in my life, but it's always kind of the, the human aspect of it that has driven me. And in thinking about the, the films that I've directed, but even, you know, um, some of the films that I've produced that maybe are not so... Um, um, or overtly political. <laughs> um, I think it's more of sometimes it's like the way the process of making the film is in some ways for me a way of like changing um, the the industry, the culture of how mm. we make films. And so I feel like that in its like very quiet <laughs> behind the scenes way is a yeah. form of activism. Um, Can you give me an example of yeah. how you do that? Yeah, so I think I've just been really trying to move towards um, this, what I, what I have learned from so many other filmmakers in the community like Elmaya Tellfeathers, um, Laurie Lizinski, um, my own producer, Jessica Hallenbeck, is really rooting our filmmaking practice with um, community in mind and um, ethics of care mm. and not trying to replicate harm or toxic environments that is um, very prevalent in the film industry. Um, so that means with like wanting to be as a producer as a director like the people that I work with um, that it's important for me to be able to feel like I can be vulnerable around them if for say if I'm just having a bad mental health day or if I really just don't know you know something um, a part of the business side just being able to feel comfortable enough to admit that and that you know there's going to be a safety net there um, but also with how we work, um, with our participants and like even just using the word participants versus characters or subjects, mm. trying to, um, establish, uh, trying to like disrupt, I guess, the power dynamics of filmmaking, especially in documentary where so many of, you know, as a director, we have a camera in front of somebody um, a participant and we're going to follow their lives so they're giving up so much (laughs) Um, and being so vulnerable and in some ways that can be very exploitative yeah Um, 
So how can we contribute to not causing more harm or actually trying to make this uh, filmmaking process transformative yeah. um, or healing in some way? So, yeah, that's what I kind of mean, like, the process. A lot of the stuff that you don't see on the screen, mm. but I hope in the sense of, like, by the way we treat each other and um, are empathetic to each other, that it somehow translates to the screen yeah. in very subtle ways. <laughs> yeah, it, it it definitely sounds like your approach is is trauma informed like that there's something mm. about you know when people talk about trauma informed interviewing like that's also that there's a lot of similarities between what you are describing mm-hmm. um and you know what what uh, journalists and other other spheres uh do as well um what what kind of responsibility then do you feel to your participants or, or maybe i should say like when you set out to make a film is it the story that is at the center or are the participants at the center? Because mm-hmm. that's not always the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then that's something that I've had, um, have had to learn over the course of uh, my career. I've made mistakes along the way. And one of them is um, something that I've had to try to practice as much as possible is transparency. Like what are my... Um, intentions and even if I don't know what they are or what it might be is just to be transparent about it all to that it's okay not to know (laughs) Mm. but it's important to communicate that um so I think for me it is uh first it is the the people that I'm inviting or reaching out to I think that's the yeah that's the most important part and from there, you know, story that comes from building trust and building relationships. If for me, if I see that there's like some, something that's happening on it with their lives that I can foresee that there's going to be um, action unfolding, um, that it still has to come from the, the trust that's built with the person with the participant if they even want me there yeah (laughs) you know if they trust me enough to um invite me into like very intimate and private parts of their lives yeah what was your earliest experience then with putting a documentary project together Mm -hmm. and um what did you learn about yourself and what mistakes did you make i love talking (laughs) about (laughs) mistakes and and the challenges that we overcome along the way Mm -hmm. right yeah, like, so you mentioned when the first film that I directed and produced was um, It Runs in the Family, and it's centered on the the queer members of my extended family, including that, my I brother. need to interject. <laughs> I cannot believe that was, that was the first. It's yeah. deeply personal, and it's your family, so there's mm-hmm. the editors there, and it was like, it was in three countries. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I am... I, I am amazed. I am yeah, amazed. I still think about that film. All the, I think Aww. about that film all the time. That's lovely. Is Jay okay? Yeah. How's Jay doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that, one of the lessons that because it's a film that's, um, it's now been five, six years completed now. Yeah. That um, uh, trying to, when I still present it, is I try to, um, 
give the caveat that like, you know, interruptions in the family captured a moment in time mm-hmm. for my brother and my relatives. And as we're thinking about like gender identity, um, we've learned so much since then. Mm-hmm. And they themselves have learned a lot about themselves. So it's, uh, you know, so trying to um, give the disclaimer. So like take this film for what it is for this moment in time in right. 2014, 2015. Yeah. <laughs> and also accept that people's identities are fluid and people change. Mm. People learn things about themselves. And I certainly have as well. Um, so that's, that's one kind of lesson that um, even with working with people right now is like trying to frame it that way. Um, because uh, you know, that like, for this right now, this is how you feel. Um, and it might not be the same or you might like, you will change <laughs> yeah. as the years go by. But um, this is a capsule of that time. Of that time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it, do you think that you made it more difficult for yourself by, oh, yeah. beginning, <laughs> with, by beginning with a fam- with your family? I think um, it's, uh, I, yes, for one, <laughs> absolutely. But it was also, um, you know, we, it, like, have you heard of, like, Return of the Saturn, kind of, when um, I was around 27, 28, when I made this shift into um, going back to school for documentary filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And for me, even though now it's like, oh, like, so much later in life it's silly to think of it that way but I really was operating on like if there is one film that I wanted to make this is the film I want to make and I was just really determined (laughs) to do it and I think in some ways maybe to a fault Um, and Mm. that's certainly some of the lessons that I've learned of that you know I'm grateful that my family um, was open um but uh, maybe in some ways I kind of took advantage of that. Um, mm. And that's something that I've taken on with other projects, talking about that transparency, um, talking about like, um, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, like the trauma informed, not wanting to cause more harm. But in, I, I feel like reflecting back on it, there are certain parts that maybe I have um, just because I was blinded by my own ambition <laughs> mm-hmm. and own determination to make this film, I didn't check in as much with my brother or my family. Um, so that, yeah, that's like has really influenced me personally, um, but also professionally. Yeah. It's, I'm learning so much especially <laughs> because I've seen so much of your work and so it, I really, this is why I always love episodes like this, the true peak behind <laughs> the curtain. Um, what, what is a Joella Caballu project? You know, especially as like, I've, I mean, there are other projects and in, in films that I didn't mention, you know, that, that in the thesis statement and, you know, what, and, and like to include, it would be like just another sentence where, you know, this, it's all these other cast of, of <laughs> people, you know, who, who don't seem similar to the other people that I've just mentioned, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. And yet you, you make us feel like connected to them, but you know, what is, what are the pro like, what makes you want to get involved with mm-hmm. the project? Uh, you know, what needs to be present, you know, in 
that group of people, um, their story, you know, that makes you be like, okay, I'm going to write some grant applications and I'm gonna commit, <laughs> like two years of my life, you know, to these people. Yeah. It's not only, um, the, the participants or the story, it's who I'm working with. Right. That's, um, so if you look at my, my CV, it's kind of, um, it's kind of, <laughs> it, uh, it showcases all of my close friends <laughs> as directors mm -hmm. and who have, um, are also my producers and really trusted colleagues. Um, so that's, has been key for me. Um, and something that I've learned really over the years that sometimes these are the most kind of intimate of relationships <laughs> that mm -hmm. I've had um, in that like we, like I, for me, like I was talking about before, but like having the sense of vulnerability, um, not only for myself, but for the director as well. Um, and that builds like such a strong bond um, and having to work together um, for a lot of, for a lot of the films that, you know, some of my early films is like, we don't know what we're doing, but we're going to figure it out. <laughs> um, and that brings us so much closer together. So I think it's like um, developing that deep trust um, with each other. And that comes from, you know, time and uh, mm -hmm. relationship building. Um, so it's often like a lot of the directors I've worked with, it's people I had, um, you know, develop friendships with. And then when an opportunity came along, it seemed like, yeah, I think, you know, we have enough trust in each other. I think this is a, the right time to, to like, let's test that more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's test the friendship. Let's see. Let's see what we do. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also something that, um, I've learned, um, recently is how to advocate for myself and like what I need mm -hmm. from my collaborator and um, something that I'm trying to unlearn about you know that I am a visible um, woman of color um, who's very proficient at producing mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and who's active and when I'm approached it's something something that I have to check myself is like, especially if it's with somebody I don't have a previous relationship with is like, why are you approaching me? Mm -hmm. Is this a token hire? Do you want to just check off a box? And the way that I have had to work around that is um, advocate and demand that as a producer, um, I am a creative producer because I want to have, you know, a sense of ownership over this project as well. And that I demand that you actually hear what I have to say and really take my, um, my thoughts and perspectives into consideration. Yeah. And um, that I'm not just going to be here as um, to check off a box and do like Excel spreadsheets yeah. <laughs> for you. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I've also had to quiet that voice in the back of my head that says like, you know, they just want you because for a diversity hire and not because of your skills. Yeah. But in some cases I've had my friends tell me, it's like, you know, you do have the skills <laughs> and the experience. That's why people are coming to you. Yeah. So it's this kind of double consciousness that happens that uh, I feel like, you know, for a lot of Asian 
people, a lot of women, um, women of color, that's how we have to kind of, that's the labor that we have to do for ourselves. Yeah. And what kind of response do you receive when you have, you have, I don't want to say major demands, but Mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you've stated that this is the minimum of what you're willing to accept in order to Mm -hmm. move forward, Mm -hmm. any pushback at all? Um, not yet. Not so far. Because <laughs> yeah, they know um, they're getting Joella Caballu on board. So. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I think people respect that. And it's something, mm-hmm. it's sometimes um, when I talk to other emerging filmmakers, other women of color who are coming up in the scene, that's like, yeah, when you are assertive and demand to people that this is what I need in order to be in a working relationship with you, um, to do my best work. Uh, It's it's often met with a positive response and uh, no one died. No one died. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, but like, it's something that I've been uh, like socially conditioned to be, um, to be like submissive or be to like not speak up Right. Yeah, and to people, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she snapped and she pointed. That's, I mean, that is, that is something huge that I've, I am personally working through right now is that mm-hmm. whole, that need to people, please that, you know, uh, cis hat white men don't necessarily mm-hmm. have that same kind of need, you know, and mm-hmm. if you remove it and you're assertive and you speak clearly, you know, but without all of the, exclamation points and um, <laughs> and that's something that I've platitudes. had to I've only am learning and I'm trying to continually to do for myself and I know yeah. it's going to be an ongoing practice and 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 it's just only in the last year that I've realized like wow as a producer that's very much a people pleaser position mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um, and, uh, for me, I've had to like, kind of unpack, like, oh, why has that been, um, the case for my career that I've been producing for other people and not creating the own projects that I wanted to direct. Yeah. So that's, you know, Joella's ongoing project. <laughs> I love it. Hey, when you, I am, I am, I will watch, I will watch whatever you make. I will go <laughs> wherever you tell me to go. I am, I am in for this wild ride. Um, Sometimes I, I sit back and I, I think about how vital, like I, I just sit back in gratitude and I think about how vital the documentary scene is here mm. in Vancouver and how um, you are all putting out work that continues to hold up a mirror to our, our city and our culture and show us the beauty and the ugliness. And it's, I'm, I'm so grateful, you know, that you are all, um, doing this work, uh, especially in the last year, because I've needed it to like <laughs> find out what's going on and that people are still feeling things deeply. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how would you characterize the, the Vancouver documentary scene? I, it's just like a beautiful, um, loving <laughs> um, community. Um, I really kind of felt it in the last DOXA documentary film festival um, where I premiered uh, my latest short doc, Kodo, The Last Service. 
And um, in some ways, it's like, yes, another festival premiere in this virtual world. Um, <laughs> but I was so heartened by the personal messages that I've gotten from fellow filmmakers um, in our the doc community here. Yeah. And <clears throat> I just got my my vaccine on Friday. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this relief um, was lifted, um, the sense of relief I started starting to feel. And um, I was thinking about, like, I cannot wait to just, you know, maybe fall, winter time to, like, go to the next Doc BC um, networking event and just, you know, get super drunk and just love on people. <laughs> That's what I want to do too. <laughs> just, just love on all and share space with people and yeah, make yeah, memories because, with them that don't involve screens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, you know, just, just showing gratitude for the people who have shown up for me during yeah. this time apart um, and also lift them up as well. So. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's truly beautiful. Um, for my listeners who love documentary but don't necessarily understand how it's put together, could you perhaps explain a little bit about the role of a producer uh, versus the role of a director? And I don't want it to make it some, but the word versus, it'd be like producer, director, <laughs> butting heads. You know, it's more, maybe more like a dance. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk? Because you mean you, you do both, mm -hmm. you, know, you inhabit both roles. So can can mm -hmm. you tell me about ways in which they in which they differ yeah the way that I described it to people um, about what a producer does <laughs> mm. which is often very mystifying for a lot of folks um, is try to say try to tell people that it's um, like a project manager mm. um, that uh, your documentary project you have to see it from beginning to end and you're taking care of the business end. But for me, the way that I work is that I also want to be a creative kind of sounding board for the director, mm -hmm. but really trying to support the vision of the director. Yeah. And in some ways that might be challenging them, um, bouncing ideas like, well, you, you described it this way. Is that how it's you want it to be? <laughs> really trying to get... Um, to what is the, the heart of the film. Um, so that's for me what, uh, what I, as a producer, is that's my role, um, the being the, the cheerleader and champion. Um, and then as the, as the director is having that creative vision. And, you know, for the, it's kind of going back and forth, but like the producer is like trying to really create the space for the director to just, yeah think about the artistic approach and how they want to execute it creatively. So I often tell my directors, like, don't worry about like all this business stuff. Like I'm doing that. So you can just go and like go into the forest and be creative. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and, you know, and, and, and that would be vice versa. Right. Yeah. But, uh, so as in, when I'm in the director's chair, um, I really like to work collaboratively with my producer and I, 
I joke in a, in a sarcastic way that like I am in no way like an auteur filmmaker like <laughs> has this like it's funny how you say visionary and um uh but I was like sometimes I don't have a vision right I have like glimmers of a vision but but maybe process, that's all you, yeah. you need like that that's what we're that's what we're seeing there there is always we can you, you definitely point us to look in a in one direction together yeah but what I guess what I'm responding to is this like mainstream um perception of what an auteur filmmaker is or Mm. like a Hollywood filmmaker that they have this grand vision and like now they have this team of people to execute it for myself that's never been the case it's like I, I really work well um, processing it and collaborating with a producer or other yeah. colleagues to really like this is our project like let's realize this together yeah have you ever had to walk away from a project or like just be like oh this isn't working this mm-hmm. will not translate to screen or the story is not yet ready to be told yeah like I've done that <laughs> several times with my own projects it's like sometimes it's just the it's not the right timing yeah. um and with other projects that I've been on board as a producer and you know it, maybe it's just funding didn't work out but I also quickly le- realized like this is not the project that's for me like I, I just know in my gut I'm not passionate about this mm. especially if you're going to spend years on a project with a director and like if you don't have that feeling, that's a disservice to your director. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've had to kind of bow out of that. And like, you know, that director deserves somebody who will be, you know, coming up to bat for them, where I was like kind of dragging the bat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was not expecting sports, met- that's sports, right? I don't even yeah. know, sportsing <laughs> metaphors, but yeah, here we I su- are. <laughs> I surprised myself as well. But like, so um, my most recent, so the uh, feature doc that I'm developing and that would be something I would direct is an idea that I've had for the last five, six years. Mm. And it's, I've developed in so many different ways as a short doc. I went on the podcast train for a bit and now I've circled back to a feature. And it, uh, you know, it it was like a timing thing. It didn't, um, you know, part of it was like I was producing for other people. It didn't have the time to really sit down and think about it. Mm. But it was only in the last year that kind of, cultural moment of anti-Asian racism, people becoming more vocal about it, that, you know, I finally found some characters. I'm like, oh yeah, duh, that's what like a story needs. <laughs> characters, yeah. participants. In participants, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what are you able to tell us about this unnamed mm-hmm. project? Uh, it has a name. Um, it's, okay. uh, it, it's called Naka Bingwit. Uh, first comes love yeah so it's a Tagalog term that I learned several years ago Um, that's um, traditionally a fishing term that means you've caught a big fish but has Uh been co-opted to mean that you've uh, you've caught a rich white husband (laughs) Um, and so it's uh, the film is um, invites us into the homes of Filipinos with white partners as they navigate race and romance against um, the optimism of Canadian multiculturalism. 
Mm. And I say that with um, kind of tongue in cheek (laughs) that this uh, kind of, I'm borrowing a term, the cruel optimism that uh, multiculturalism invites immigrants into this country, but doesn't really, we don't reap the benefits of it as being fully recognized as Canadians. For many years, I had had it as a concept, you know, Mm. that's very much inspired by my own experience. And I think what I'm only realizing now that the reason why I was having trouble of like getting support was that it didn't have a story, Mm. didn't have characters or participants who could, we could follow on this journey. And in, it was only in the last year that, um, you know, like I said before, with the anti-Asian violence and Black Lives Matter resurgence, um, I finally um, found Filipinas like talking about this openly on social media. Yeah. Like, how are you talking about race with your white partner? And how mm. are you navigating those conversations and moving forward? So it uh, sparked an idea for me of like, yeah, looking into intimate relationships, maybe they can be a model for how we approach uncomfortable conversations about race with other people. We need this so, <laughs> so desperately. Um, I mean, you've mentioned the last year and the pandemic and the anti-Asian hate and Black Lives Matter and the social justice revolutions. Um, how do you think this time, this time of change, a turbulent time for everybody, but has impacted your art and your craft specifically? Um, yeah, it made me reflect a lot about my role um, in the industry, um, with the projects that I'm working on. So like I mentioned before that like, wow, I've been working as a producer for quite a long time, even though these are projects that I love. um, I know in the back of my head, even pre pandemic, I had been wanting to get back into the directing chair. And so that has uh, really motivated me to take this Nakabingwit project off the shelf and revisit it. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I'm going to just do this. Like, this is the time to do it. Um, and yeah. And and like, I guess in some ways it was like, I had internalized that in some ways it's internalized, but it's also an externalization that the industry that, uh, audiences didn't want to hear about these stories. Hmm. And that, uh, you know, our institutions that are dominated (laughs) um, by white, cis, male, um, yeah, that this was, they didn't fund these stories. Hmm. And I think I just had to, yeah, I just came to a point where I couldn't live, like I couldn't operate by fear anymore or operate in the sense of like really, um, internalizing this hatred towards myself and like what my own communities <laughs> want. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, it's just having, I'm, I'm grateful to have support from like my producer, Jessica Hallenbeck to really bolster my confidence that yes, this is a story that people want, yeah. even though um, 
I might not hear that from major funders or decision makers, but knowing from my own community that this is a story that they want. So that's really rooted me. Yeah. (laughs) That this is a film for them, not for uh, other folks. Yeah. I mean, and that's the kind of harkens back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, your reaction to my thesis statement about Mm. being seen, right? You, you Mm -hmm. felt that you felt seen in that moment. And this, this film, Nakabingwat, is that what you said? Nakabingwit. Nakabingwit. Yeah. Um, I love Tagalog. I love <laughs> that you, for some words, you also, there's no word for very, so you have to say it twice. It twice. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love that about Tagalog. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this will help a lot of people feel, feel seen. So we at YVR Screen Scene are excited <laughs> to support your, your work. Um, you have, so you mentioned Koto Last Service, and there's another project um, that uh, will screen on the Knowledge Network. You want to tell us a little bit about this very exciting, uh, it's a, like an anthology mm-hmm. of, of, mm-hmm. of films that, about place and interactions mm-hmm. with place. And so can you please tell us about your place? Yeah, in this <laughs> series. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the the series is called Behind the Facade. So, untold stories about BC's um, buildings, um, historical buildings, and neighborhoods and landmarks. It's produced by Lantern Films. That's Jessica Hallenbeck and Dave Rodden Short. Um, They've been commissioned by Knowledge Network to make a series um, of ten short films about untold stories of buildings Mm. and they approached me to direct um, a three-minute short about the mission the seafarers building at the port of Vancouver and really to tell it was like you know I always use this pun but it's like an entry point to talk about um, Mm. the local and global community of Filipino seafarers Um, and yeah it was a it's it's something that I wasn't aware about. Um, first of all, this building is this prefabricated 1940s house <laughs> mm-hmm. on the port of Vancouver. So it kind of stands out <laughs> against all the cranes and vessels. And the Mission of the Seafarers is a charitable organization that supports and advocates for the well-being of seafarers. Mm. And something that I was surprised to learn especially if you're in Vancouver, if you look out into English Bay, into the inlet and see those tankers, I was surprised to learn there's people on there. Mm. <laughs> those are seafarers, a uh, majority of whom are Filipinos, um, who are the, attracted to this job because it's well-paying, but the great sacrifice is that they're away from families for you know, 10 to 11 months to a year you know, on end. Um, and what we, I, what we learned in our research um, about seafarers is that uh, this feeling of sea blindness, that when they're out on the sea, they can see uh, onto the mainland, but uh, they don't feel like the people on the mainland see them, which is quite true mm. <laughs> from my experience. Yeah. This was, um, approaching this dock was a way to, um, to lift that veil mm. um, and also to speak to the other industries 
uh, locally and globally where Filipinos are overrepresented. So in healthcare, um, as migrant workers, as farmers, yeah. but they're completely invisible to the greater community. Yeah. Um, we invited a local um, Filipino-Canadian poet, Saul Diana, to write an original poem. And uh, that was a new venture for me <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, kind of in my quiet resistance um, of our broadcaster, I'm grateful um, that uh, Lantern Films was commissioned. But they also wanted to disrupt this celebratory narrative mm -hmm. of um, what the the entire series was about, like celebrating the anniversary, 150th anniversary of BC joining mm -hmm. Confederation. So was wanting to disrupt that narrative. Um, and uh, for me is to showcase contemporary Filipinos, which is weird to say, um, but to show Filipinos um, living and thriving because so much of our media representation of Filipinos is of their trauma and of their pain. Mm -hmm. um, so inviting Saul to write an original poem about um, seafarers was a way to celebrate them, but also kind of lift that veil, as I mm -hmm. said. It's fantastic. That is so fantastic. Um, I'm thinking a lot too about uh, Vancouver's and BC's really dynamic Filipino Canadian uh, film, like the filmmaking community, mm, you know, mm. I mean, the, yourself and Anna and Kent, who was on the podcast recently mm -hmm. talking about Kalinga care. Um, you know, it's, it is, and you're all telling such different stories uh, and, you know, and showing joy and family and community, you know, in mm -hmm. such, in different ways. Um I just love it. I just like wanted to point it out. Um, so I guess I kind of want to, I want to end with, um, with your audiences, hmm. you know, when they're sitting at the end, let's imagine they're in a theater, they're in a theater <laughs> and they have just experienced a Joella Kabalu project and the credits are rolling how do you want them to feel, you know, or what kind of conversations would you mm. love to be listening to, you know, mm -hmm. in the lobby after the mm -hmm. film, yeah. you know, well, everybody like, that's my favorite time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all back in the theaters we're in the lobby exactly. after and everybody wants to talk about the film. Like what are, mm -hmm. what are the kinds of conversations that you would love to be overhearing? Yeah. <sighs> Um, with, uh, with Kodo, The Last Service premiering at DOXA, um, it was clear from the messages that I was receiving that everybody was, <laughs> um, it was so heartfelt and um, that everybody cried. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, I suppose like just in general, I want people to feel moved just as I, how I felt moved, you know, watching, you know, kind of circling back, callback um, to Soundtrack of a Revolution. You know, that feeling of like this um, feeling of being seen or just being connected to somebody on a very yeah. human, feeling that kind of sense of empathy for someone's situation. And yeah. um, I feel like, you know, it's so cliche to say, but that's like why I'm so drawn to film and like 
that is the power of it, why I was loved it from such an early age. Mm. Um, and yeah, I do miss that uh, the lobby post-film conversations of just like, you know, people asking questions about like, why did you choose this shot? And like, I love doing that too. <laughs> yeah. Just being engaging in those conversations. Um, and, you know, this is something, especially for Naka Bingwit, um, I'm, I'm grateful that I uh, have support from the Canada Council to do research and very recently with the Creative BC Rogers uh, Documentary Fund. Um, is, uh, yeah, is that like trying to remember like film is a story, but it can be used, documentary especially, can be used as a tool mm. to catalyze and uh, to facilitate conversation. And, you know, even though, especially for Naka Bingwit, I'm doing all this research, um, I, I've been telling my researchers like, yeah, we don't want to just like find uh, participants who will be like the experts on colonialism and like internalized <laughs> racism. We don't need them to like name drop that in the film. You know, that will be the context and the background yeah. and we just need them to live their lives. And, you know, then we can offer this film to yeah. communities, to educators who can then do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like show don't tell. Yes. Yeah. 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 And trying to remember that it's still a story, right? Yeah. Filled with participants. <laughs> I will be calling them. Because I, I mean, I, I've been referring to, uh, when I interview documentarians, I've been saying interview subjects for mm -hmm. for many an episode now. So yeah. now you're challenging me to... It's a, this is something I've just recently, um, like as recent as yesterday, when I had my meeting with my researcher who doesn't come from a film background. Yeah. And I said characters. And it's like, oh, that's interesting that you say characters. Like, for her, it it meant, you know, fictionalized characters. Fiction, yeah. That these are people, you know, over there, very detached. Yeah. But uh, it challenged me. It's like, no, just as I was talking about with the friends of the family, these are living and breathing people, very dynamic lives. Yeah. And um, they, these things have impacts. So it's trying to remember that connection. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you, you've certainly, you have certainly connected your audiences to a lot of different people, a lot of feelings, a lot of experiences. So I am very, very grateful for your work and also for your time here on the podcast today. Thank you so much for holding this space, Sabrina. Thank you. Salamat po. <laughs> um, Joella Cavallo, where can our fans find you, follow you, celebrate you, <laughs> keep up to date on all your different projects yeah, on the social yeah. media? Yeah, on social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Joella Cavallo. And I just launched a new website. It's amazing. After, <laughs> after eight years, I finally wow. have a professional website. So joellacavallo.com. Finally. Okay, and I'm going to be <laughs> dropping all sorts of great links uh, into the footnotes for this episode so uh, go on yvrscreenscene.com and check it out all right well thank you joella thank you thank you to our listeners please like and subscribe if you're so inclined leave us a review 
Those help us find even more listeners and then we get to continue having these conversations. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Furminger, and it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane, not Furminger Devolet for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. <laughs>